This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Joining us today on the Workplace Podcast to discuss her book, Conflict Coaching Fundamentals, all the way from Australia, is Dr. Samantha Hardy. Sam, very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you. It's not a long way from where I am, <laughs> only a long way from where you are. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's let's talk about your book then, Conflict Coaching Fundamentals. So this is published by Routledge. And let's talk about conflict. So I was really interested to hear about your book. It says one of the fundamentals are the stories and narratives we tell ourselves about conflict. Do we get do we get wrapped up in our stories or our narratives? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I found over and over again in the past 30 years that I've been working in this space is that often people talk themselves into a corner. They tell themselves a version of events, you know, and there's some similarities between the dysfunctional versions and the more constructive versions. And people talk themselves into a place where they don't have a lot of room to move, where they can't see very many options. They're very self-righteous. They can't admit to any kind of contribution. It's all about blaming the other person. And that makes it very hard for them to engage in constructive conflict management or conflict resolution processes. So if you're a mediator, you know, you get your parties together before a mediation and you say to them, it's really important that you try to move beyond positions and you talk about your underlying interests, your needs and concerns. These people don't get that or they can't do it because their story limits them from getting there. So for me, this is about... um, Changing people's story helps them open their minds in a way to engage more constructively. And often we we try to tell people what they should be doing and what they should be saying and how they can fix it, but they're stuck in their story. So it doesn't make any sense to them. It doesn't fit their version of events. Why do they create this these stories in the, the first place? I'm thinking of going back into your book then. I'm thinking of the merchant of venice where we must have the pound of flesh there we dream of justice why do we create these stories or narratives that we get wrapped up in look it's a really interesting question and it's something when i did my phd research around these stories i tried to answer that question and it's very hard to answer other than when we're children when we're taught about you know, good guys and bad guys, we're told these very simplistic stories about, you know, if you're good, then you'll get what, you know, you'll get justice and it's a fair world. And we get taught those things at a very young age. As we get older, the stories get a little more complex and it's not so black and white. And sometimes people don't get what they deserve. And sometimes bad people aren't bad. They're just complex and, you know, they're having consistencies. But I think what happens then when we become adults and we get stuck in conflict, we revert to being like those little toddlers who who want things their own way and we see things in black and white. And the legal system, to be honest, promotes that. The way the law requires us to present cases in court is that very melodramatic, good guy, bad guy, right or wrong. We divvy it up according to 100% of, you know, who's right or who's wrong. So I think there's a few things that, that promote that. One is the way we brought up um, and our childhood expectations of fairness and justice. But then I think from the other end, the legal system creates that kind of mindset. So I think in popular culture, it's just tends to be the way we think about conflict. It's not the same in all cultures, but it's very much a product of that kind of Western, wide, individualistic culture that conflict is about us and them, right or wrong, this sense of justice. 
but it's not actually that helpful when we want to try and get people talking. Yeah, and that that the adversarial process or the legal system, that adversarial process probably isn't very helpful, especially for people in the workplace and they're fearful of that the legal route. So this is where conflict coaching and mediation can really serve uh, us well. And then you, your book mentions the work of Gottsell, so that we tend to get caught up in these conspiracy theories. Oh, I think there's something going on here and all this type of stuff. Tell, tell us more about that. I mean, I think one of the problems is when we get into that story where we're the innocent victim, the other guy's deliberately trying to do something to undermine us or to stop us being promoted or to get in the ear of the manager so the manager doesn't respect us and trust us enough. Um, when we get in that kind of mindset, we stop communicating. We stop communicating with the other person. We don't go and ask questions to check out our version of events. We just sort of assume that. And then that building on that becomes these conspiracy theories. We start going into, you know, a whole lot of psychological things where we have, we assume the worst. When someone does something that we don't like, we assume they intended to do it. And that those things build and they're consistent with our melodramatic story of good guys and bad guys. So they are the things that stick in our minds. Anything that's a little bit inconsistent, the good guy does something bad. I mean, sorry, the bad guy does something good. And we think, oh, maybe he's not all bad we very quickly forget or we, you know, we we turn it into, no, there's surely an underlying motive, ulterior motive to this. So we keep filtering um, information that's inconsistent with our story or interpreting information consistently with our story. And that's how we end up being conspiracy theorists because we build and build and build. Our emotions get attached to the story. Before you know it, we're in the middle of some kind of almost world war-like situation in the workplace and things have got completely out of hand. <laughs> we wake up one day and think, what happened? I like what did this from your book, Conspiracy Theory, a fictional story connecting real information and imagined information into a coherent and emotionally satisfying version of reality, isn't it? It's, it's a way of comforting us so we can make sense of all that information, we we create stories based on incomplete information, according to your book. Yes, and we we interpret it so that we're painted in the best light and often how good we look depends on how bad the other person looks. So those two things seem to go together. And this is where we'll it'll bring us then into the melodrama. So let's talk everyday conversations. What is melodrama? Because some people might say, oh, don't be so melodramatic, William Corliss. Yes. So we use the term melodramatic as being, you know, over the top, bit sensationalised. Um, but actually, as a genre, it has some pretty kind of basic components. And I fell into this by accident because in my PhD, I interviewed a whole lot of people in conflict and I ended up with two different versions of stories. And when I say I interviewed them, I didn't really. I said, just tell me what happened and let them tell me a story. And I ended up with two different types of stories. One group were very much on the innocent victim. This bad guy came along. They're deliberately trying to do these terrible things to me. It's not fair. Someone save me. I need justice. But then there were these other people who were like, yeah, something bad happened. But, you know, sometimes life sucks. But, you know, you just kind of move on. And I figured this way to get through it. And often those people even had a positive slant to it. And then in a, a very serendipitous moment, I was also doing a degree in French because, you know, I didn't have enough to do trying to do my PhD in work. But I, I was doing French as my kind of hobby. And I studied a subject on French theatre. And as part of that, we read some melodramatic plays by some French melodramatic kind of pioneers, I suppose. And as I was reading some of these plays, I was like, this is the same story as these people who are stuck in conflict. And I thought that is so interesting. So I went and had a look at the criteria. So there's a couple of things about melodrama. Firstly, the characters are either good or either bad. There's no complexity, right? You're with us or you're against us. <laughs> you're completely innocent or you're completely evil. And, you know, that feels comforting, especially if we're the good guy in the story. But it's never realistic that, you know, in any conflict, it's not that straightforward. The second thing is melodrama is all about blame. And it's always blaming the bad guy, of course. 
So there's got to be some kind of process where the bad guy's evilness is revealed and then punished and then the heroine, usually a female in classical melodrama, is sort of restored to their rightful position. And that's the other thing about melodrama. The end is the same as the beginning. So it's not forward-looking. It's about restoring the status quo. We get rid of this troublemaker and everything goes back to the way it should be. So there's no learning, there's no growth. Um, so that sort of dynamic feels really good if you're the good guy, right? But what happens in conflict, each person thinks they're the good guy. So you have Bob who says, I'm the innocent victim and Mary's the evil villain. And then you have Mary who says, Bob's the evil villain and I'm, I'm the innocent victim here. And so you have these clashing stories and they just don't make sense when you put them together. Any mediator has heard that version you know, where you talk to both parties and they're both telling kind of the same story but from the opposite roles. Why would nice guys or nice girls speak to evil villains? So it almost prohibits conversation if we classify people as good or bad. I think that's... Brilliant. And especially when we're trying to restore, restore the status quo, who says the status quo was the proper status quo in the first place? Absolutely. And there's this fantastic quote um, that one of the guys that I interviewed said, he said, when, when this happened, everyone kept telling me, you got to bounce back, you got to bounce back. And he said, I don't want to bounce back. I want to bounce forward. And I was like, mind blown. What an awesome way to think about it. So we have the the different characters then. We have the heroine that you were saying, very virtuous. We have the villain, the baddie. And then we have two more, the father figure and the bumbling helper. So tell me a bit about those two characters because it's not just those two. You need more in a plot. No. So in melodrama, there's always a father figure who is the person who has the power and is responsible for dispensing justice, for sorting through the confusion, usually created by the bad guy and sort of unmasking the bad guy and ensuring that everyone's put back to where they're supposed to be. Um, so in classical melodrama, he was a king or a military ruler or sometimes the heroine's actual father or a guardian, usually a man in that era, you know. Um, but he he needed to, to, he was the smart one. The heroine, while she was very virtuous, um, wasn't particularly bright, wasn't particularly active, um, suffered a lot very in a very beautiful way, <laughs> but didn't really do anything. So the father figure has to come in and sort it all out. Um, and in a way that when clients come to me, for example, for coaching, they often come with that mindset. They're looking for a father figure. They're looking for someone to solve the problem for them. And part of that is because they've talked themselves into this helpless kind of identity where there's nothing I can do. Everybody else has got more power than me. Um, help me. You know, they want you to do it for them. The, the, kind of irony of it is the more you help them, the more they become helpless and you get that learned helplessness. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. So the father figure is the person who solves the conflict and you know in a, in a court system that's the judge right and so in melodrama fits perfectly in that in that context the bumbling hero though I love the bumbling hero in um in melodrama he is um often someone who's in love with the heroine or he's someone who's you know related to her or just a really good person who believes her despite the confusion that the bad guy is creating and no matter what he sticks by her um, so he's always telling everybody how virtuous he is, she is. He's always supporting her. He's a shoulder for her to cry on. He's someone for her to talk to when she doesn't feel like anyone else can listen to her or cares about what she has to say. Um, but he's practically useless. So he, he can't do anything, but he's there giving her moral support and, and being by her side. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, but... When clients come to me and they want me to sort of be their father figure and solve it for them, what I have to do is try and become their bumbling hero. I'm somebody who's there for them, who's totally on their side, who's going to listen to them, but I'm also going to ask them questions and get them thinking about 
whether they do have some room to move, whether they do have some possibilities to be more active, whether there might be some choices that they haven't noticed yet. So if I'm, to use the metaphor, if I'm in the bottom of a dungeon in a well or something and with, I'm the, the bumbling helper next to the heroine and we're trapped together in this <laughs> deep, dark dungeon and I notice, oh, look, there's a ladder over there. We could probably climb out of that. I'm not going to tell her that. I'm not going to grab her and carry her up that ladder. I'm going to say to her, wow, it's not real nice here, is it? No, no, it's a bit cold, it's a bit dark. wonder how we could get out of here. Have you got any ideas? I mean, have you had a good look around? I mean, maybe we should have a look around. I'll come with you. But, you know, have a look around and I'll be there with you so we don't get scared of the dark. And I'll be with them as they sort of make that exploration without dragging them to the thing that might save them. So that's the kind of um, metaphor that I use. I want to be their bumbling helper. You don't want to sort of tell them that <laughs> I'm really bumbling and I'm completely useless. You're probably not going to get much business, but that's the kind of relationship and mindset that I want to have when I'm working with a client. And it is that sense of empowerment. And I, I, I came across this as we trade power uh, for sympathy so that's a tactic as well, isn't it? Can you tell me a little bit about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what the heroine in melodrama does. She gives up all her power for sympathy because sympathy is like a shield for her virtue. Um, if she acts, she risks doing something that people might not agree with or that could potentially make things worse. But as long as everyone feels sorry for her, <laughs> so eventually a father figure is going to turn up and save her. But, but she's disempowered herself. And, and a lot of people in the conflict resolution field are really well-intentioned and really want to help people. And they can help people by giving them advice or telling them what they should do. But the downside of that is they often disempower people and they often create this sort of learned helplessness where the person doesn't learn to figure it out for themselves. And I use the analogy, my daughter's seven, she's just learning maths, it's very exciting. And she'll be looking at her math homework and she'll say, I don't understand, I got it wrong. I don't understand. And I could say, oh, it's because you forgot this, do this, then you'll get it right. I could tell her what to do. But next time she's stuck with a maths problem, she's gonna say, mom, she's gonna ask me to come and help her. Whereas what I've learned to do is say, oh, wow, it's a long time since I've done math. What did you, what are you supposed to do here? Oh, okay. And what did you do? And how does that compare with what you were supposed to do? And if we go through that process, she'll often realize, oh, I forgot this bit. Oh, and then next time she might try it herself first and she might get it right without having to ask for my help. So that's the kind of relationship I want that I haven't done math for a while, even though I could do it and tell her the answer I'm kind of pretending that I'm bumbling here so that she figures it out and you see it in their faces in my seven-year-old's face in my you know 60 year old CEO faces that sense of empowerment when they figured it out themselves when they realized they did have it in them all along and they just needed a little bit of light shined on there to bring it out you can see them walk out of the room not just with a solution but with confidence and that lasts forever. You know, there's that terrible cliche, you can give a man a fish and he eats for a day, you teach him to fish and he can feed himself for a lifetime. It's that kind of corny cliche that, that we're looking for. And that's where coaching meets mediation, where coaching, a lot of it is about empowerment. And then, then when we talk about mediation, it's that key principle of self-determination, which is why mediation is uh, being a lot more favoured in the justice system because people have a say in the outcome they are the experts on the problem it is wonderful um to hear about that and then i'm just i'm just curious then we talk about the workplace then how how do these characters show up in the workplace so could could the father figure show up in the workplace where i'm gonna go on oh yeah i'll step oh, yeah. in and the here father figure the father figure is often the manager or, you know, someone higher up in the hierarchy who gets sick of it and just tells them what to do, you know, solves a problem. You know, they come in, they're complaining about who's rostered on what day and they say, right, you know what, I'm just going to say, you're on this day, you're on that day, problem solved, get out of my office. 
the the substantive issue might be resolved, but these two people are not going to trust each other. They're going to be undermining each other. They're going to be complaining about each other. And this is going to come back in some other way in the future. And I think that's a difference. And conflict coaching is something that it can be used by an external conflict coach, but it can also be used by someone in a management role, not instead of managing but as a precursor, as a thing to try first to build your staff's capacity. Um, and I've done some work, for example, with a big government agency where team leaders were complaining that their team were constantly in conflict. And it was about trivial, what they saw as trivial things, you know, someone taking too long on their break, someone um, taking too long with clients so they weren't getting through the number of clients compared to other people, these sorts of things. And they would try and resolve it by directing. Okay, you have to come back on time for your, from your break or you have to hurry up or, you know, you have to meet this number of clients. We trained them to use a conflict coaching model with their staff. And they're like, this is going to take forever. Like if I have to talk them through a process where they figure it out themselves. And we had to sort of encourage them. Yes, at first, there's a time investment. But what you're going to get out of it is you're employees, your team members are going to hopefully come up with a good solution that they feel like they've got themselves, but they will also learn some skills and build some confidence to figure things out themselves in future without bringing it to you. And it was really funny because the team leaders came to us a couple of months later. They'd been, you know, persevering with this, thinking it was a bit of a waste of time or too much of their time. And after a couple of months, they came back to us and said, conflict's gone underground. Like, I'm not hearing about it anymore. Then they're not coming to me because they don't want to have to go through this process. We said, okay, that could be what's happening. Let's go talk to them. So we went and talked to the team members and that wasn't what was happening. They were figuring it out themselves. They were building their confidence and their skills by going through this process with their managers. And these same conflicts were coming up, but they were dealing with it themselves in a really positive way and didn't need to burden the manager with it. So it did end up saving the manager a lot of time and built, built better team cohesion and rapport. That's the beauty about mediation and conflict coaching. That time investment at the start really pays off if people listening here in here in the workplace realize the amount of time they actually spend on team conflict the loss of productivity the loss of talent recruiting people all these very different things at the end of the day profits are there to be made if you put the, the time investment in isn't it yeah yes and, it, and just because you're coaching your staff doesn't mean you give up your power or your responsibility for leading either because there are going to be times where you're coaching someone they come up with a way of managing it that's totally inappropriate so you know it doesn't mean you give up all of your responsibility and authority to your your team and hope that they don't mess it up too badly there are still times where you're going to have to take your coaching hat off put your manager hat back on and say you know what that's not going to happen that's not within our policy that's you know a really bad idea so now I'm going to direct you but give them a chance first and you'll be surprised at how much team members can figure out themselves and how much they can grow in their capacity to manage conflict effectively in the future. So let's let's return to the storytelling and tell me more about negative anticipation and that self-fulfilling prophecy that you write about in your book. Yeah. I mean, we've all been there and we've all seen it happen. If you think somebody's a bad person, then the way that you react or respond to them, the way you um, behave, the facial expressions you make when they walk into a room or they speak in a team meeting, you know, you kind of ask for them to behave badly because, you know, if, if you're rolling your eyes at everything they say, they'll notice that and then they'll start acting up. They'll start getting defensive. They'll start, you know, thinking that you're not a very nice person, so not giving you any benefit of the doubt. So you get in this vicious spiral where, where you start expecting the worst from each other and then you filter out any inconsistent information and you're into bad guy versus bad guy again. And this is what happens before a mediation, for example, people get really uptight and then they realize when they go through the mediation, that was actually very easy compared to what I've expected, isn't it? Do you have similar yes. experiences? Absolutely. And conflict coaching is actually a really useful thing to do pre-mediation because you can 
do a lot of the work one-on-one with someone in getting their mindset ready for that kind of conversation. So the mediator has to do less work. So you can get parties to hit the ground running when they get to mediation. And then, you know, the mediator is like, these parties are great. They're already being really open and honest and talking about what they need to talk about in a clear way. They're listening to each other. So you can prep parties. But coaching, you can also use at the other end. So when there's an outcome, you know, parties in a workplace will agree on certain things that they might change about how they're communicating or how they work together. But when they go back into the workplace, their colleagues are there, you know, interfering and it's not quite as easy as they thought. And sometimes it can be hard for them to implement that agreement. And coaching is actually a really useful way to keep sort of monitoring and reviewing their process and supporting them to put into action what they've agreed on or maybe to to change it if necessary. Um, It's used a lot in Australia post-family parenting agreements in in family separation as a way of keeping things on track and helping people to review how the implementation of agreement works. So it's, it's really interesting that you can use it at both ends. Yeah, and I use conflict coaching quite a bit in the private meetings before the joint session, which is really useful. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. So I'm curious about your thoughts then about the zero-sum thinking that can happen, that win-lose, and... How do you prime people for empathy? So, you know, when we go in, you were saying there people are prepped. I mean, I mean, I guess one of the things that we haven't talked about yet that might set this up a little bit is if a dysfunctional conflict story is melodrama, what's a more constructive one? What's the story you want people to be telling themselves when they walk into the mediation? How do you want them to be thinking about the conflict in a different way as they go in to try and have a conversation with someone? And it sounds counterintuitive, but the genre that best fits the way that I think is a constructive way to be thinking about conflict is tragedy. And that sounds really counterintuitive because, when we, again, when we think about tragedy in a common sense kind of way, we think it's life sucks and you've got a fatal flaw and then everybody dies and it's you know, a sad ending. I talk about tragedy with a twist. And this is why I think tragedy works. In tragedy, first of all, everybody's complicated, right? There's no good guys or bad guys. We're all this messy combination of people who are flawed, not necessarily with one major fatal flaw, but, you know, we've all got little quirks that make it difficult for us to get along with certain people in certain situations, right? So we're all imperfect. Um, So nobody's completely good or completely bad. We're all this complicated mess where we have good days, bad days. We can behave badly in certain circumstances and not in others. Secondly, there's no father figure in tragedy. The hero has to somehow figure it out for themselves. They don't always get it right, but at least they're in there giving it a go. And in tragic theatre, the hero stands on stage and does these big soliloquies to the audience where they're sort of saying, how did I get into this mess? I mean, I thought this was going on and so I did this and this and I was convinced that was the right thing to do, but then this happened and that wasn't, and now it's even worse. And oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I could do this, but then this would happen. I could do this. Oh, I don't know, that's a good idea. So they do this kind of reflection, this verbal reflection, trying to figure it out. And in a way, that's what I want to support coaching clients to do, to go through a process of verbal reflection where they unpack How did I get into this mess? What was I thinking? What did work? What didn't work? Where are the areas where there's uncertainty and confusion now? How could I find out what what I need to know to, to make a sensible choice? And tragedy is all about what do I do next? Trying to figure out what to do next. Now, in classical tragedy on a, on a theatre stage, for example, almost inevitably the hero makes the wrong choice and then suffers. Um, and maybe dies if you're looking at Shakespeare or something like that. But even when the ending is really, really bad, right before the ending, the hero learns something. They learn something about themselves. They learn something about human nature. It's kind of a bit late, but they do have some sort of learning from this terrible outcome. What I want to do in coaching is help them to have that learning before it gets too bad. (laughs) I want them to twist the ending, have that learning from the stuff that hasn't gone well, 
but use that to build a, a twist in the ending where they get the benefits of that tragic sensibility, that tragic mindset, but hopefully everyone doesn't die at the end. And there are six things that six things that are different from the dysfunctional story to the functional story. So these are the things I'm looking for. Simple to complex. So a melodramatic story client comes in with a very simple version of events. Everything's consistent. I'm good. They're bad. Everything they do is bad. This is what justice looks like. It's very straightforward. It makes sense, but it's overly simplistic. In tragedy, it's complicated. So it's messy. There's, there's some things that aren't, don't quite fit. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the middle that doesn't seem directly relevant, but maybe it could be useful. So simple to complex. The second one is certainty to uncertainty. Anyone who works with people in conflict knows certainty is a really dangerous place to be because you're almost always going to be proved wrong. There's always some sort of complication. So I want people to go into a conflict interaction with a healthy sense of uncertainty, a healthy sense of this is what I think is going on, but maybe there's more that I don't know. And ideally added to that uncertainty is a curiosity to find out the missing links or to find out why it's different from the other person's perspective. The third shift is passive to active. As I said, in melodrama, the heroine just sits around and suffers in a beautiful way until someone saves them. And it's kind of dangerous for them to do anything because if they get it wrong, their virtue is on the line. You know, you don't want one little slip and you're the bad guy. So you just sit there doing nothing. Um, in tragedy, you have to do something. You have to act. And it's risky. Making choices and doing something is risky because you might get it wrong. Hopefully, if you've got a good conflict coach, you've got some support to, to check that out along the way. The fourth thing we talked about already is dependency to agency. So in melodrama, the heroine is dependent on the father figure or someone to look after them. In, um, in tragedy, the, the hero kind of has to do things themselves. But again, in coaching, I don't do anything the client could do for themselves so even summarizing I don't summarize much I'll say to the client so summarize to me the main points of that intervention or you know where we've got to so far so I constantly reinforce you've got to take responsibility here you can't rely on me I mean you can but mostly you've got to do everything yourself and I'm going to support you to do it yourself the next one we already talked about past to future in tragedy in melodrama Everybody's looking at the past and wanting to restore it, um, this idealised version of the past. In tragedy, everyone's looking forward. Okay, it's not perfect and it's not certainly not the same because, you know, water's under the bridge, which is reality in workplace conflict. You ne even if the bad guy, in inverted commas, leaves, it, you don't go back to where you were before. Everybody's watched this play out, right? You've got a reputation. There's something on your file even if it was disproved. Um, you've got some triggers now that have built up from this encounter. So someone else will say something in passing that reminds you of the person who's left and you'll flare up in a way that's unpleasant. You know, you never go back to the way it was before. <laughs> it's never reality. And the last one is that bit about tragedy. Yes, in all conflict, there is a certain level of suffering, right? Conflict is not pleasant, even if we handle it really well, even if we are the most skilled, confident conflict manager it's still uncomfortable and there's moments where we suffer where we don't like it where our emotions are you know going so we recognize yes that's a part of conflict it's a part of life but we can learn from it rather than wallowing in it we learn from it we learn how do I minimize that in the future what do I do to take care of myself through this difficult interaction um, how do I ensure that when I go into that mediation, I look after myself, I manage my emotions in a way that's effective? Um, so sorry, I've gone on a big rant, but they're, they're the six shifts that I think we can get people to in, in coaching, which means when they get into mediation, it's a joy for the mediator. Those people are ready to talk. They're ready to listen. They're ready to see different perspectives. They're ready for creative solution generations. And they're ready to stick to it because they've thought through it really, really well. And it's not to say that you can't do some of that in mediation, but most mediations are fairly short. Um, and a couple of sessions of coaching beforehand will save you hours in a mediation. The other thing that I wanted to quickly mention Mediators can definitely do some of this in pre-mediation. 
but you have a different role. When you're a mediator, you have to be that impartial person, right? Whereas if I'm coaching, I will not coach both parties to a conflict. I will always refer the other person to a different coach. So when they're talking to me, they can feel 100% safe to be really vulnerable, to be that tragic hero who says, I really screwed up. I can tell, I can see in hindsight that that was really egotistical or disrespectful. And there's absolutely no concern that that's going to come out later on unless they choose to bring it up in a way that they're comfortable with. So it's a slightly different relationship that can sometimes help people shift further than what you can do in a mediator role, even using the same techniques. And is there some examples then of unlocking people or or locking questions to move people from melodrama to tragedy? So I'll give an example. Yeah. I was I was working with two people and I asked each of them this question, tell me about the relationship before. And when that happened, that gave me a whole different insight to how strong the relationship was, how close they were. It was actually not just a normal working relationship, it was a bit more than that. And again, this then allowed then to emerge to say, okay, so what would you like for the future? You know, so all these unlocking questions. Have you examples of those? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that that helps just from the outset is to ask for lots of detail. And it's surprising how much we accept in a superficial sense. So people will say, oh, we had a couple of interactions that weren't very unpleasant in the lunchroom. And we go, oh, yeah, because we kind of imagine we know what that means. I don't let people get away with generalizations. I'll say, okay, tell me about the first of those. Who was there? Where were you? What did you say? What were people's body language like? I get them to describe to me events that are important in the conflict in their story so far in great detail. And and they're really happy to tell me because I'm on their side, right? I'm asking these questions to help them. So I understand what's going on to help them. Um, So detail in itself often kind of destabilises this coherent story because as more details emerge, little bits of information come in that, um, you know, maybe aren't quite as simple. A question that's also useful is what happened in between? So you talked about this first incident in the tea room and then you talked about this second incident in the team meeting. Tell me about an interaction you had in between them. And they don't mention it because it's nothing dramatic, it's nothing bad, but chances are there has been an interaction in the middle that was kind of neutral, right? And again, it's not going to change the world, but it gives balance, right? If we can balance the dramatic events with some neutral events, sometimes positive events. And I'll say that too. I won't say, have you ever had an interaction that was positive? Because their instinctive response will be no, because that's consistent with their story. I'll say, tell me about a time when you had an interaction and it went really well, right? As if there has been one. 99% of the time there has been one, right? And they'll start talking about it. They may justify it a little bit, but again, it gives a little bit of balance, a little bit of complexity to an otherwise simplified story. So that's that sort of questioning is really useful, the exception question. Um, once I've worked with them really unpacking lots of detail, I also ask them specific questions about the other person's perspective. But I do this in a very particular way. So I don't say, Bob, what do you think Mary was thinking at that time? Right? I don't ask them to mind read. Rather, what I do is I say, okay, Bob, if Mary was here today, if I was coaching Mary and I said, Mary, what happened in that interaction with Bob in the tea room? How would she describe it? You get a very different answer when they have to answer in the other person's words. It's a really subtle semantic difference, but you'd be surprised at the different answers you get. If you say, what were they thinking? Oh, I don't know. You know, she's just a bitch and she was probably just thinking that, you know, she couldn't be bothered. Whereas if I say, how would Mary describe that interaction? Oh, oh, she'd probably say that. And then you get something a little bit more nuanced. So there are two things. There's, I mean, there's other things, but they're two good ones. I think that's great because that elicits the complexity to it. These are the cognitive distortions that we do. We like to make things as simple as possible as clean as possible. And this is where we create those stories and narratives. 
This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. And I'm just wondering then, have you ever been in a situation where, and I have, so I'm, this is a bit loaded, this question, where the conflict disappears? Absolutely, absolutely. When someone unpacks their story, they suddenly realise the conflict has been in their head. It's not actually real, you know. So in um, my book, I think I talk about Angela's conflict story where she's decided that this older, more experienced woman in her workplace is out to get her because she's the new kid with two degrees um, and she's always saying things like, didn't they teach you that at uni or, you know, with your two degrees you should know how to do that. Um, And as we talk through it, Angela realised that it wasn't really about Angela. It was about the fact that this woman was the oldest person in the organisation. She was the only person left in the organisation who didn't have a degree. She had years of experience, but no degree. She was feeling under pressure from all these youngsters coming in and banding, you know, their bachelor and masters around and knowing all the whiz bang technology stuff. But she was also feeling like she had a lot to give. And Angela had this moment where she was like, she's actually feeling really insecure about this, but I could actually learn a lot from her. And she went back and instead of getting upset at her or, you know, kind of walking away, which was her standard response, she actively went to her and said, you know what, you've been here so long and I know a lot of stuff, but I don't know the practicalities. Like I'd really like to learn from your experience. Will you help me? Totally changed their relationship. This woman, instead of her enemy, became her mentor. And they had a really lovely relationship from then on where they helped each other with the things that they weren't so good at. So I think that's a, that's like the textbook example, but that sort of stuff happens all the time. A little misunderstanding turns into this full-blown conflict or two stories of conflict. And once we sort out the tiny misunderstanding, which often one person can do on their own, the whole conflict just disappears. It's It's kind of sad that we can get ourselves into such horrible conflict and we can lie awake so many nights and we can complain to so many people, we can make it unpleasant to be in a workplace over something that's only in our heads. And, I mean, that sounds awful, but it happens to all of us. Every one of us. And in that case, it could have been seen as a power struggle over knowledge or expertise or it was a battle between education and experience and that's how she described it it's a constant battle she used that language it's a nightmare it's constant battle she used that melodramatic language and it turned out it was just a misunderstanding <laughs> is is it that amazing how we we filter things through our mind and it's that self-serving bias that we have mm-hmm. And again, this is where we go back into that learning, that suffering from learning as well as, and this goes back to the empathy. How do we encourage that empathy then for the other person? Have you any tips for us about (laughs) encouraging empathy? Yeah, look, I mean, I could actually talk about that for ages because one of my other specialties is working with emotions in conflict. I have a whole course on that because I think it's something that's really underdone in our training in the conflict resolution field. And empathy requires a couple of different things. It requires us to identify people's emotional displays. So we see people's facial expressions, their body language, their tone of voice. And from that information, we get a sense of what they might be feeling. So there's that do I get your signals of how you're feeling? That's required first because we don't have a clue how they're feeling. We can't empathise. The second part of it is do I understand why they might be feeling that? Like what could they be thinking or experiencing that's leading to that feeling? Most people think they're really good at that, but there's a whole lot of really, really interesting research that shows on average we only get it right about 20 to 30% of the time when we're trying to figure out why someone's feeling something. 20 to 30% of the time. The most empathetic people usually don't get more than 50% of the time correct, right? So for me, the key to empathy is not trying to take someone's perspective, but encouraging them to give it to you. And for me, that's about having a conversation. It's about building an environment where the person trusts you or the the mediation, for example, the, the process that they're in enough to be vulnerable and really talk 
about that. Really talk about what they're feeling and explain why they why they feel that way. Explain the cognitive side of it. Then we have a much better chance of empathizing and getting it right. <laughs> because what I see a lot of is we kind of go, oh yeah, that must have been really sad for you. You must. I can. I see why you're angry. Not that helpful, really. I mean, it makes them feel like they've been heard, but. What can you do with that? Whereas if you really understand the nuance of the anger and the thinking process and the contextual factors that led to it, we have a whole lot more to work with. We can have a much more meaningful conversation about what would you like me to do? How could I best support you? How could I best show you that I, I empathize with you and that I want to help you? Or how do I, what do you want me to do in front of other people to show that I'm on your side, that I get that that was reasonable? So for me, it's at that, that line I like, don't take their perspective, but encourage them to be in an environment where they can trust you enough to give it to you in detail. So final question. I know you're, you're, you're a busy woman. <laughs> so if someone is stuck in a loop and we're trying to encourage learning and we're trying to uh, uh, encourage empathy, their story, their narratives taking a grip. I'm, I'm thinking about somebody who has been stressed for months or or maybe a year. Like, how do we, how do we, I suppose, unlock that loop or how do we disrupt it? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's two things to think about. More often than not, if I get somebody like that and I help them to really believe that I'm on their side, that no matter what, I am there for them to help them figure out what's best for them. You know, I'm not going to judge it. I trust that they are the expert of their own life. I'm going to help them to unpack what they know, what they haven't been paying attention to, what else they could get access to and make a decision. You'd be surprised when people really believe that, when they really believe you're there to support them unconditionally and they will answer your questions, how much they can find a way out of that loop, how much they can find opportunities, because that loop is often a safety mechanism for them because they don't feel safe or they're not sure how to get out of it. You give them enough space, you give them enough attention, you keep them reflecting, most people will find a way out. Some people don't, let's be honest, <laughs> and there are two reasons for that. They are getting some sort of secondary benefit from staying in that loop. You know, there's something that is more valuable for them being in that cycle than the alternatives. Um, and while that might not be the choice that I would make or the person they're in conflict with would make or their manager would make, for whatever reason, that's their choice. Um, and one of the things I could do with a person like that is help them recognise it and, and ask them quite challenging questions. It seems like you're not interested in looking at this differently or making any changes. Let's talk about that. You know, what are you getting out of this version of events? What are you getting out of this situation staying the same? You know, what are the consequences if you don't shift? Um, and, you know, it's their choice, but, you know, sometimes people have a reason whether we think it's a good one or not for staying in that loop. And there are some people who, for whatever reason, um, you know, mental health issues just don't have that capacity to make those choices for themselves. And so my key um, criteria, I suppose, for taking on a coaching client is that they're interested in the possibility of making different choices. They have to at least have that interest. Um, and even the most challenging clients who come in who are very self-righteous, who don't really want to be at coaching, their bosses told them to go, so they're here to suck it up. You know, they don't really want to talk about it. I'll say, feels like you don't really want to be here, you know, that you're just kind of here because it'll keep your boss happy and you're really not, not wanting to engage. And often they'll go, yeah, the worst of time. I'll go, oh, okay, so... Tell me about how you how we got here. I mean, what made your boss send you? I mean, sounds like it was a bit unfair if you didn't want to be here. And then they go, oh, yeah, because this happened. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, that doesn't sound great. So tell me what happened. Tell me, you know, exactly what happened then. And before you know it, I'm coaching them, mm. right? They've started describing how unfair it is that they've had to go to coaching. And before you know it, we're in it. Yeah. And then they start to see, oh, wow, this is actually useful for me. And she's not telling me what I should do or could do, she's just there with me, following me along, but every now and then slowing me down and going, hey, that sounded interesting, tell me more about that. Or, hey, we just skimmed past this little 
alleyway there. Let's go down there and just have a look. You know, just just meandering along with no particular place to go, but seeing what we might discover along the way. You'd be surprised how many people will make a positive shift. I can't guarantee that they're going to go from, you know, the world's worst employee to the world's best employee overnight, but to to make enough of a shift and enough of a momentum to sustain that improvement is what I can mostly do with a client in that situation. Well, Samantha, that was hugely informative for our listeners. Thank you so much. And we're coming to the end of our podcast now. If we were to find more about you, Sam, uh, your services and your book, how might we do so? Yeah. The best place to go is uh, CCI Academy. It stands for Conflict Coaching International, but that was way too long for a URL. So it's cciacademy.com. And on there, you can see all my training, links to publications. Um, I do lots of webinars. There's a, a course that I have that trains you in the real conflict coaching model, which is the coaching model based on that melodrama to tragedy, getting people out of their stories. Um, and I also mentioned briefly, I've got a really cool course that I'm really proud of, um, working with emotions in conflict that really uh, builds on the most recent research around emotions and how conflict practitioners have so many more things they can do other than just reflecting back emotions or reframing to remove toxicity. Like that's so, I don't know, mediation 101. <laughs> I'm trying to get us to mediation 999, you know, when there's so much more we can do. We don't have to be therapists or psychologists. Basic understanding, looking at different strategies, supporting people in different ways. It's, it's yeah, I was just so excited by it. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me. Excellent. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.